The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So we're working with uh, this topic, the storytelling mind. For those of you who like, uh, we're following through Jack Kornfield's book, The Wise Heart, and getting our topics from there. So we're on chapter 10, which is called The Storytelling Mind. And of course, this is uh, something very obvious, not even just to meditators, but anybody who is at all reflective understands the power of thinking and how it shapes, very much shapes our reality. How easy it is to basically be living out of our thoughts about things. How seductive that is. And the problem often is that once, again, whether we're meditating or not, once we begin to have a sense of how destructive our thinking patterns are, we tend to have thoughts about how destructive our thinking patterns are. And they're just as seductive as whatever thinking patterns we're afraid of or think are bad. So it's a real conundrum for us human beings. And you know, having a relatively complex mind and complex language and this capacity with our language and our brains, our minds, to have ideas, concepts, and then to be fooled by them or to be confused by them. And there's some really provocative images in the Buddhist tradition about this. Like uh, one is uh, about some monks, and you know they're still discovering some of these caves in Asia where some of the early Buddhist practitioners have painted things on the walls. But anyway, as this story goes, I'm not sure it has any basis in fact, but it's a good teaching story. You know the monks or nuns or whatever were painting things in the, on the uh, wall of the cave, probably with their torch and, you know, all kinds of different things, including fierce, you know, especially in some of the Vajrayana traditions of Buddhism, you know, they're really into uh, kind of fierce images. And, uh, and then, you know, so you've spent a couple years of your life painting this very elaborate drawing or painting on the wall of a cave and then one day later you hold the torch up and you see the fierce whatever and you're frightened by it. You think it's real. And this is a, a powerful image for us because this is what we do. The mind constructs things and then those things that we construct, they frighten us. We take them to be more than what they are. We think about our future, you know, and it's so beautiful that we want to grasp the idea we have about the future, or it's so frightening, you know, we want to crawl into a hole to escape this idea, this concept we have in the mind. I bet everybody in this room, who gave each other a few minutes, we could concoct a story that would make the hair rise on the back of our neck. If we really, you know, like, scanned through our memory banks, you know, and brought out those particular provocative images that are frightening for us, and then really thought about them, you know, we could get the hair to stand on the back of our neck. We could bring other images to mind and maybe, you know, generate a lot of sexual desire. Other images to mind and start salivating, you know, so hungry as we imagine our, you know, 
comfort food when we were kids, spaghetti and meatballs or something like that, you know? And then all of a sudden, we can feel a lot of craving, a lot of aversion. So this is uh, something we want to highlight, the power of the mind to seduce us, the thinking mind. And another story that's used in the tradition is this idea of a wish-fulfilling tree that if you're underneath the wish-fulfilling tree, whatever you think of arises there. And the story goes, you know, the person sits under the tree and he's hot and he's really appreciative of the shade and but wishes for a little bit more like a nice drink or friends to share it with, uh, food to go with the drink, and then becomes suspicious about how everything is just appearing as soon as he wishes it and wonders if there are demons in the tree. And of course, then the demons arise. And then he wonders, are those demons going to eat me? And then those demons eat him. And again, it's just a, a provocative story about how we create the hell and the heavens that we visit. And But the thing is, we're not aware of it. And even when we start getting a sense of what's going on, we tend to react with more of the same as if we're defending against what the mind, the thinking mind is doing with the thinking mind. And it, it never interrupts our basic addiction to thinking as a way to take care of our problems. We address our existential problems as a human being by trying to think about them. Think about how many times we try to, you know, there we are late at night, trying to create some real comfort by rearranging what we think about our life. You know, trying to find a way to hold, explain our life to ourselves that makes us feel comfortable so we can go back to bed or something. So the first thing, we have to respect the power of thought, ideas, concepts, images to seduce the mind. Meaning, a particular thought or image that might arise, we take it to be more than what it is. I mean, just for a moment, just reflect. What actually is a thought? I mean, just bring a thought to mind. Uh, an elephant is gray. Right? So that's a thought. Maybe you have an image. But just, and repeat it, you know, just so you get a chance to work with a thought. An elephant is gray. An elephant is gray. I mean, what is that as a thought, as a natural present moment phenomenon? What is a thought? Or you could say something like, I'm a male, I'm a female. Now, as a thought, what is that? Now, like when it starts to get personal, like I'm a male in my case, you know, the tendency of my mind is to kind of energetically go, yeah, I'm a man. <laughs> or, yeah, I'm a man. Or whatever it does. But it has, there's a certain weight then to it. But when, we, when we're real honest, when we're practicing mindfulness, which is what we're all interested in, then that thought is just a thought. If there's any emotional or energetic, visceral reaction to it, then that's just what that is. But the thought, I'm a man, or an elephant is gray, it's just a little, very light, ephemeral movement of mental activity. I mean, it's not much of anything, actually. It's like even something even more provocative, like uh, 
the uh, world is falling apart and we have, we've got about six or seven years left. Okay? That's a thought. Nope. That thought's different than any kind of panic that might come when you hear that thought. So the thought itself, you know, the earth is in trouble, we've got six or seven years left. You know, can we just let that arise in the mind and cease? The thing is, we're con the mind's conditioned, so when a thought arises, then it generally there's an interpretation, you know, and that interpretation, that way of relating to it, creates a visceral charge, which makes it seem to be more than just a thought. Now, I'm not saying that our thoughts, like, first of all, we definitely don't, that the practice isn't about not having thoughts. It's really about transforming our relationship to thoughts so that we have a more spacious, wise relationship to thinking. Because sometimes our thoughts are really wise, like, you know, I should go to common ground tonight, or, you know, how is it, you know, how is it now? You know, how's the body, how's the mind? That's, that's a thought. And that thought sort of uh, directs the attention toward the present moment. So generally, you know, in the Eightfold Path that the Buddha taught, the second step in the Eightfold Path, the second instruction in the path is sometimes translated as right thought or right intention. So it's all about this recognition that we need thinking, intention and thinking to transform our lives, to live a wholesome life. Just So thinking is just this neutral thing that basically has been uh, hijacked by this particular pattern of creating, through thought, provocative ideas, concepts, reacting to those provocative ideas and concepts with a charge, an energetic, visceral charge, which makes those thoughts provocative. That's what actually makes them provocative, is they've gotten associated with the charge in the body. And then the charge in the body triggers more of the same kind of thought, and the thought triggers more of the charge. And this play between the energetic visceral charge in the body and the content, the thinking and images in the mind, is what we call ourself. You know, and, and I'm different than you because that particular dynamic, that particular play between charge and content is slightly different because I've been conditioned. Things that, are charged, that sort of trigger a charge for me maybe don't trigger a charge for you. And on and on. It has sort of a self-perpetuating nature, this dynamic. And so uh, we want to respect it. And then the real kicker, the real thing that begins to really, uh, where we can start to recognize, oh my God, there's a path, is when we realize that both of those things, the content, in terms of thought, the language, you know, and image, and the charge that is associated with our concept or idea about something, both of those can be objects of awareness. So when we're totally absorbed in our thinking, our fantasy, our worry, our planning, we're just not aware of this 
in a sense, this other dimension that allows the mind to know thought, to know that charge, that emotion. We're just, in a sense, consumed in a very narrow place where this is all there is. You know, this dynamic between the charge and the content. It's so much, the uh, habit of the mind is so much, this is who I am, that we don't look anywhere else in the present moment. And in a way, we really lose the present moment. We could. This is when we say, I was lost, I was caught up in thought, I was caught up in that story, I was, you know, I was imprisoned by my anger, my greed, my delusion, but now I'm okay. Because <laughs> now I realize that. And so this is, you know, this is how we talk about it to ourselves. So the question is, well, how do we become how do we become a real student of this pattern? We have to water that insight that I just mentioned, that thinking, mental activity, and also the charge that gets triggered depending on the particular mental activity. Both of those things can be known. Mindfulness or awareness or whatever you want to call it is able to simply see, oh, that mental activity, that mental content is being known. It's just an activity or a something being known in the space of the mind, in the field of awareness. And this charge, whether it's subtle or obvious, whether it's a negative emotion or a positive or unpleasant or a pleasant emotion, this is also this also can be known right here and now in the space of the mind, in the space in the field of awareness. This is like a big discovery when we really get that any time the mind is lost in thought, caught up in thinking, worrying, planning, judging, fantasizing, that in the next moment there can be a very simple, resonant, oh, this is just thought. Not in a negative way, not like we're putting it down because it's just thought. But what it's just... Uh, it's like we're recognizing that that mental activity, that idea, that image, it's just what it is. It's just this very simple ephemeral mental activity. I mean, you could bring to mind right now the most despicable thought you're capable of thinking of. And you might actually be repulsed to bring that to mind. But actually, it's just a thought. I realized this even before I got into Buddhism as a teen, you know, and there are certain thoughts that you are not supposed to have. And, uh, you know, it's like whether it's about your sexual orientation or about uh, what you think about your parents or, you know, whatever it might be. And, you know, those things that those doors you're not supposed to open. And it's because. No, then they get charged. They, that the charge really builds. Then you know, because as soon as you go like, I can't think that. No, no, I don't want that image in my mind. Well, that charges it up. You know. So we've got a big history of having charged up a lot of images and thoughts, whatever they might be. And then now, because we're a practitioner. And we're learning to cultivate some stability in our body and minds and some 
basic contentment so that we have some resiliency, we're able to let things flow. Like I suggested in the guided sit, you know, we use our devotion, our good relationship with our breathing, with sensations of the body, with hearing. We cultivate that relationship over time because it creates a lot of stability, a little bit at least of contentment. And then when the practice deepens, a lot of contentment. And that really creates some stability, which then we're not afraid of the mind, the thinking mind just doing its thing. Thoughts are allowed to come and go. Images are allowed to come and go. But because we feel stable, resilient, fearless, we can feel the different charges that are associated associated with the different thoughts that come and go for whatever reasons, you know, maybe getting triggered or maybe it's just their time to arise in the space of the mind. But now they come and go without the mind uh, recharging, reinforcing, and they wear themselves out. During the patient's retreat on Saturday or workshop, I quoted Joko Beck, this wonderful American Buddhist matriarch who just died, unfortunately, a, a month ago. She, I think she was 90, though, so about her time, I guess. 94? Yeah, so way up there. Anyway, she has this great line, something about, I'm going to have to paraphrase it, but uh, something about, you know, it's not that we actually ever let go, we just wear things out. And in her own kind of provocative way, she's just suggesting, I think, this point that I was making about these patterns. We wear them out, they wear themselves out, basically, through the non-identification with them. But to not get identified with the thinking process and the emotional charges that come with the thinking process. I mean, a lot of our thoughts, of course, don't have much of a charge. But just because we don't think it has a charge, there's probably a subtle charge there that's keeping the momentum of that particular kind of thinking, imaging going. But when we have a lot of stability, a lot of samadhi, a lot of fearlessness that comes from a collected mind, a unified mind, we just let things move, emotions and thought, content. Everything is allowed to move, including, of course, painful sensations, pleasant sensations in the body. Everything is allowed to move. And so we're purifying the heart and mind of the tendency to react. And it's wearing itself out in the sense that it's moving, that there's no more energy being infused with that particular content, that particular image. And before long, 10 years, 20 years, <laughs> there's no more charge. There's nothing to sort of uh, make anything a big deal about that particular pattern, let's say. And then we can say the mind or heart is liberated. It's no longer under the control, under the dominion of that particular image. So when it arises, it's as if nothing moves. The mind is, doesn't flutter at all, doesn't react at all. And then we can say, you know, in that regard, in that sense, the mind is free. Now, all of us, when we were children, things would arise in the mind and they'd get a charge and we'd react, we'd get absorbed or lost in it. Now, some of those things don't scare us anymore or don't attract us anymore. You know, I can have an image of G.I. Joe 
and I don't, I don't crave. But when I was five, I craved G.I. Joe's. So I've matured. But, but it's important to understand like how that works. You know, and I remember, and maybe this is true for some of you too, like just the whole scene around Christmas. I remember like burning myself out. It was just sort of freeing myself from that whole scene around Christmas because it was so painful to want presents on Christmas morning. And, and, just, and then it wasn't long, I don't know, maybe seven or eight, when I started to realize I'll never be satisfied. You know, my parents were never going to get me everything I wanted. We, I grew up with seven uh, siblings, or six siblings, so there's seven of us. And, uh, you know, we were just middle class. But I don't think it mattered, actually, whether we were, like, affluent. It probably would have been the same insight. But just somehow, this sort of sickening feeling, like the, the craving, the wanting, and the, and the sort of understanding that the craving could never be sort of matched with an actual experience. And I kind of, it's like I, I slowly changed my whole relationship to gifts. Now, I, I, I probably still have the resi- residue of like aversion to the whole gift-giving thing, you know, in, that, in a ritualistic sense, birthday gifts, Christmas gifts. I think I do still have some aversion. But, but part of it was really wholesome in just seeing that, uh, like investing a sense of self in gift giving, gift receiving, is frustrating. It's like leads to suffering. Now I think there's a healthy place for this. So I consider myself still a student of gifts and Christmas and birthdays. <laughs> but this is just an example of how this is a very natural process for the pain of our stories, the pain of our thinking, the pain of the way we relate to our partners, our lovers, to our kids, to our you know, community, the world at large, and the charge that go with those thoughts and images. Like we have every reason to become a good student and to try to understand and to try you know, to cultivate enough safety through the development of samadhi to let all of that move. So we're really uh, freeing up the attachment, the, the part of the mind that adds, makes thoughts, images, concepts more than what they are. So we can have the thought, you know, oh, I don't want the world to end. But we can realize, oh, that's just a thought. And then we realize the charge. Oh, this is just the heart hurting. But remember, just the heart hurting. It's not like an aversive reaction. It's, it's just a simplification. And it allows for a real poignancy. But not a poignancy based on some fabrication. But a direct connection with the heart that's hurting. Oh, the heart hurts. Oh, your heart's hurting too. You don't want the world to end. But we tend to kind of create this proliferation. And the thing is, the proliferation is actually a defense against feeling what we're feeling. I mean, that's the real sad thing. 
What's actually healthy is to feel what we're feeling. But the endless proliferation around our partners, around our families, around our opinions about things, about the world, about ourselves, it actually keeps us from being intimate and poignant with how it is. And that's what's really purifying and freeing. When we don't, in a sense, have to run from being a sensitive human being because we don't know how to handle the sensitivity. We learn how to handle the sensitivity and then that's that's really the samadhi part, right? We learn how to get stable being really sensitive. People think about getting concentrated or that continuity of awareness as just leading to bliss. But it's two-edged, right? We get a lot of calm, a lot of contentedness, and we get a lot of sensitivity, hypersensitive. We feel everything. Like a famous and controversial teacher, Trumpa Rinpoche, said it's like uh, you know, the heart is raw. And I love the images. Many of you have heard me say this, like some of those uh, Christian icons where they take the heart of Jesus or St. Joseph or St. Francis and kind of set it off a few inches outside of the body, you know, just sort of raw heart. And that's, a, for me, a really powerful image about what happens as we develop the continuity of awareness. We become really sensitive. So there's two things, really wise, the mind, is, uh, wisdom really is just letting things come and go. That's what wisdom does, non-resistance, to the unfolding reality of mind and body. Just letting things move. So that's wisdom. And then there's also this tremendous sensitivity. So there's a real connection or intimacy with the movement. We're feeling everything. We're not resisting that exposure, that raw raw connection with life. So when we're happy, like a real intimacy with the happiness. And when we're connecting with sadness or loss, there's a real intimacy connection with the loss. When there's fear, undefended with the fear. So the whole spectrum of emotion, pleasant and unpleasant. And the whole idea is that it's not about controlling feeling. It's not about being afraid of feeling or favoring pleasant feelings over unpleasant feelings. It's like either we sign up for life being a a whole human being or we're in this terrible situation where we only want part of life. And then what that sets up is like we disconnect from life because you can't get part of it. You know, either you're disconnecting from life or you're opening to life. So once we start thinking there are parts of life we don't want to be aware of or be connected to, our only option is to disconnect from everything, which is constructing thought and getting lost in it. You know, that's the only way to disconnect. It takes a lot of work because we have to keep doing it. You know, it's not enough to do it once because that thought's going to go away. You've got to keep generating thought and getting lost in it. The generation itself is stressful. Being disconnected is painful and stressful. So the other option is through working, training the mind, Discovering a kind of resilience and contentedness, space, spaciousness, clarity, and realizing that it's not dangerous to let everything move. 
to let thoughts come and go, to let sensations come and go, to let emotions come and go. It's a very different relationship to thinking. And it's so important to realize it's not about controlling thinking. It's not about controlling it. It's about not being confused by it. Thoughts come and go. Intense thoughts, ordinary thoughts, stupid thoughts, the whole range, beautiful thoughts. Here's uh, the basic teaching from the Satipatthana Sutta, one of the better known discourses of the Buddha, where he's talking about mindfulness practice. And how, practitioners, does one in regard to the mind abide contemplating the mind? So the Buddha taught four avenues, four foundations. Awareness of the body, where he means the five physical senses. Awareness of feeling. Awareness of the mind. And this is translated uh, in different ways, awareness of mind objects. But I think the best way to understand the fourth is awareness of skillfulness and unskillfulness in the mind. So here's the third foundation. Contemplating the mind. Here one knows a craving mind to be craving and a mind without craving to be without craving. One knows an angry mind to be angry and a mind without anger to be without anger. One knows a deluded mind to be deluded and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. One knows a contracted mind to be contracted and a distracted mind to be distracted. One knows an expansive mind to be uh, expansive and a narrow mind to be narrow. One knows a surpassable mind to be surpassable and an unsurpassable mind to be unsurpassable. One knows a concentrated mind to be concentrated and an unconcentrated mind to be unconcentrated. One knows a liberated or released mind to be liberated or released and an unliberated mind to be unliberated. So he's not telling us to judge how the mind is or to fix the mind or control it, just to know. It's like this now. Now the mind's like this. Now the mind's like this. Now the mind is caught and it's like this. Now the mind is not caught. It's liberated. It's released. Everything's allowed to come and go. And that's like this. You know, there's so much uh, a sense that we have to fix it. We have to liberate the mind, for example. But that's just another, it becomes another self-centered project, doesn't it? And then we're afraid if we feel like we're not being successful, or we become prideful if we feel like we are being successful. So the key is finding, you know, for this mind, for your mind, Finding a way to create stability. Stability of mind and body. If you're overwhelmed in your life, you can't do this practice. If you're overwhelmed because you're cheating your on your wife or your partner or your husband, or if you're cheating on your taxes or you're not organized and you haven't cleaned your bathroom in two years, or you know these things cause stress. If your closet is ready to fall out every time you open the door, that eats away at the heart. It, so when you do get some time to sit, you know, it's sort of like that's what's going to arise, one form or another. So to create stability, we have to understand that it's so easy to get confused by life. 
that if we really want to do the work of not being confused, we have to uh, organize our lives as best we can. Now, you know, some of us, for example, people in a lot of poverty or dealing with intense illness like cancer or taking care of a dying parent, you know, these things are just what they are. And we just have to do the best we can given our particular circumstances. And when our circumstances become relatively favorable, we don't want to kick back. Hey, God, I'm so glad my circumstances are favorable. We want to take advantage of them. Oh, I feel pretty stable now. When I sit still on my couch at home, I don't have all these demons attacking me. Oh, my God, I haven't cleaned my closet or, you know, I haven't written that thank you card or, you know, forgot to get married or, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever might come to mind. There's a, this is what we call sila practice. We sit down and it's like we're not tormented by the past because our life has been relatively clean, you know, and we don't have a lot of regret, a lot of guilt. So that's the first step. And then we just, the second step is just directly training the mind. We call it samadhi practice or learning how to unify the mind, learning how to abandon things that agitate the mind, not as an end in itself, although it's very pleasant to do this. So in a sense, it's as good of an end as anything we get. You know, it's better than a movie, a good movie even. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) But it's just a means, it just brings a lot of stability so we can really learn something about the mind. So that's the basic training of bringing the attention to something pleasant or neutral and learning to have a continuity of awareness and to like not immediately pick up the mild distractions. But just not now. Just staying with the body, staying with the breath, staying with hearing, or even a more open attention where we're just noticing what's predominant moment by moment but not getting lost, not getting in a reactive mode with what's being known. So there are many ways to develop samadhi, not just one, hundreds of ways to develop samadhi. If you keep looking for the best way, you'll never develop samadhi. <laughs> so just find a way. You know, listen to the instructions, somebody you respect, or a book that has been you know, really useful for you, and just work with it for six months. Don't just keep changing. Know what you're doing, and then at least at the beginning part of the sit, you know, if you're sitting for 45 minutes every day or if you're lucky a couple hours every day, then really spend part of that just doing this training. I am using all my creativity, all my sort of intelligence to see what I can do, what I can do to skillfully direct the mind in a way that leads to this inner happiness this inner contentedness, this inner stability, this inner clarity, this inner nimbleness of the mind. A mind that's not like this. Like some concentrations make makes the mind really brittle, tight. But uh, like, I really want that person to love me. You can get really concentrated thinking, you know, about that. Like, or I really want this job, you know, and we're just really want to plan the perfect vacation. But it's a really brittle concentration. But the kind of concentration we want is very nimble. So like when we're with the breath and there's a loud sound, 
the mind just very just knows that okay hearing and it comes back then it's like oh god you know because because all we care about is the continuity of awareness it's not the continuity with the breath that's important it's the continuity with the present moment that's important that's what brings that inner contentedness and that stability that nimbleness that inner happiness and then with that we do the really important work which is we learn to let everything move sensation move without any resistance thought and emotion move and we learn something about the sensations of the body and the movement of thought and emotion we learn it's not self it's not personal and we learn we don't have to take a hold of it with what we call grasping you know that attachment or identification we can just let it move come and go over and over again and when really wise thoughts arise really beautiful emotions arise we recognize that's a really wise thought really beautiful emotion and so because we recognize it because we're not lost or caught in it we can recognize the really beautiful emotions the really beautiful thoughts and we can recognize that these this is a perfect thought to act out you know to kind of take into action in the world in my relationships and you know my job or whatever and when a really unwholesome thought unwholesome emotion arises because we're not attached we're in this more relaxed nimble place we recognize that that's really unwholesome it's really destructive you know don't act that out but we're not afraid of it we're totally there you know the awareness is right in the middle of things it's not like you know off on the top of the tree looking down on our life the awareness in a sense is sort of right in the middle of everything it's not actually distinct from what's being felt or known but the awareness isn't confused by what's being felt and known so it's able to discern skill scope what's skillful and what's unskillful and it naturally allows what's skillful to blossom into action and speech and what's unskillful is just allowed to arise and cease which is what everything does and it may come and go but the mind each time it arises the you know the you know unskillful thinking pattern the mind isn't confused by it you know when the mind is stable and happy and wise and that's really the art of not being sort of pushed around beaten up by our storytelling mind because we all know we have all for so long been beaten up by our storytelling mind and the habit of getting identified with it taking it as reality basically so I'll leave it here there's a little bit more than 15 minutes it'd be nice to hear from people what you've learned in your own lives questions yeah please say your names my name is Clara Clara
call that intuition. Um, but now I'm stuck in this sort of obsession that all my thoughts are in some way leading to some sort of truth. Yeah. And there's this sort of play between physical comfort and my thoughts. And I'm not quite sure what's focused on and kind of intriguing. Yeah. Well, that's the great thing about samadhi. When the mind has balance, then thought and emotion can arise. And we're not dismissing it, but we're not making it more than what it is. So in a way, thoughts, emotions, they're just bits of information. But we don't really, we don't really know exactly what they're saying. But there's some information there. You know, it's part of the information that we're receiving. So there's what we see, there's what we hear, what we touch, what we smell and taste, and what we think. That's all there is in terms of what is informing our life. There can't be anything else informing our life. I mean, what else would there be, right? So we're, the, the mind, the heart, is sensitive to those six things, the five physical senses and then the mind in terms of image and thought and emotion. And so we want to receive that information as clearly, deeply as we can. If we have opinions about it, it actually gets in the way. You know, if we are taking it to be more than what it is. So what we emphasize in the practice is sensitivity, but not sensitivity with an agenda, just to be sensitive. And it means cultivating this pretty profound capacity to not know. Because every time we feel like I have to know what this means, whether this thought is true or not, whether this impulse or this intuition is true or not, it actually, you can just notice how everything starts to get a little rigid and tight. You know, and we actually lose intuition. You know, it's funny, it's ironic that like demanding intuition you know, demanding to know what the intuition is cuts us off. The only thing that helps us to be more skillful, and you know, we're only going to be as skillful as we can be. We only have as much information as we have in any moment of our life to inform what we're going to say or do, the choices that we're going to make. It's only going to be as good as it is, so we can't demand that there be more information. All we can do is be as sensitive as possible. So that, the, in a sense, the information is really having its impact. So that means being vulnerable or open, clear, with our life, moment to moment. And then we respond from that moment of clarity. We, you know, however, you know, based on the information that we were sensitive to, there's a response. And it will be as skillful as it is. And then we have to completely accept that, because that's actually the next moment. Part of what we're sensing, we're feeling, we're connecting with in the next moment is the results of how we responded in the previous moment. And this, if we responded, if it turns out to be really skillful, then we're receiving, in a sense, the fruit of that skillful response. And if it was an unskillful response, but that's okay, because really noticing that, really being intimate with that, we'll learn from it. You know, it would just get incorporated in the mind stream. Well, you know, it's in the way we talk about it in Buddhism, it's just tautological. You know, skillful just means that the results are pleasant. 
pleasant, not just now, but down the road too. You know, not just in the short term. So you don't. You just you you have a sense by the kind of fruit, like what has come out of that response. A lot of times it's mixed, you know, right? There's some there was some skill in how we responded to the situation, some delusion that created maybe some problems. But when those problems arise, you know, it's not so clear. But one thing that you, we can with when the mind becomes more sensitive, the practice has more momentum. Or actually notice the intention in the action, in the words. And that itself, if we can notice that, that the intention itself is either a relatively contracted intention, like fear-based intention, greed-based intention, or wisdom-love-based intention, which has a very wonderful feeling. You know, when we act or say something out of true love, what we call metta or wisdom, you know, there's a really light, free, liberated quality to that action, those words. That when I'm trying to manipulate you or something, you know, get something, if we're mindful, it will feel, I'll, I'll feel that tightness. If not in that moment, maybe like as an aftertaste, you know, sometimes when we're in an interaction, it's harder. It's more like graduate level mindfulness. But afterwards, you know, it's over and now we've got, there's a little quiet space. And then we'll notice that there's, oh, that yucky feeling, and we go, oh yeah, I was greedy, or I was hateful, you know, and this is how it feels. That wasn't skillful, you know, and then that's the fruit. But then we can either judge ourselves, which would be just more hate, or we can completely receive that yucky feeling as good information, like really let it make an imprint in the heart. Oh yeah, okay, let me really feel this. Let me not forget this, you know. And it becomes kind of our spiritual wisdom heritage you know we and there's actually a term in buddhism hiri otapa like wholesome concern wholesome regret it's like the unconscious but we make it conscious like that sensitivity the mistakes we've made it's really intelligence thanks did you say sarah yeah thanks sarah other thoughts people have yeah kim Absolutely. And either that redirection is going to come from a, a relatively neurotic place or a relatively liberated place, meaning it's really arising out of nature. So there we are. Let's use something that's you know fits maybe our situation. Like we want to go check our email or read the news, even though we've done it six times already that day. Yeah, well, for me too. So there we are. It's 10 at night. We could... You know, sit before we go to bed, do a little loving-kindness practice. We could do a little yoga. You know, we could read a, a useful book. <laughs> but we want to do this, you know. And, uh, and so then, because we've got some samadhi going, you know, we're relatively relaxed. 
we've been practicing relatively continuously for a couple years, and there's just more mindfulness more often present in our lives. So there we are, drawn to, you know, be get on the internet, and there's some awareness, you know, oh, and and what that awareness is, it's willing, it's willing to feel what we feel, like. I'm bored and I want a treat. You know, it's that sort of like, oh, poor me. I want something interesting. My life is boring. Maybe something interesting is happening, you know, or something like that. And But now we're, we've got some mindfulness, so we see it. And we kind of get, like, that's a beast I don't need to feed. You know, that, oh, poor me beast. Because we now have some space. We're not taking it personal. If we're not mindful, we just take that, oh, I need some entertainment personally, and we just act it out. But if we have some awareness, some space in the mind, some wisdom in the mind, we see, oh, that's, that's just a thought. And then it's just, it's like, because we're willing to feel that kind of that, oh, poor me beast, realize, oh, this is a, that's just a pattern that doesn't need to be fed. You know, what can I do about it? But all of this can be done naturally, like how we redirect the thought. So if, if we act too soon, it's more like, you know, I don't want to be that person who watches, you know, reads the news all the time or is just obsessed with the Internet. You know, I, that's not who I want to be. And we just want to cut it off, like you said. So, we, you know, we don't want to suppress it or repress it. So this is a real edge in our practice life. Can we allow the, correct, the correction arising out of wisdom to happen in its own time? Like, to stay mindful. There you are turning on the computer, you know. And you're just, but you're really trying to notice the mind state that's being cultivated. You know, really being interested in it and interested in the narrowness of it, the fear-based, the craving-based nature of it. And to see if wisdom will find a creative way to cease the activity out of compassion for itself, in a sense. It's really neat to see that. And that way, we can start to tease out this parental energy that tends to be inefficient in, in terms of deeper spiritual life. You know, where we feel we have to control ourselves because the beast will take over if we don't. And then we can justify all kinds of destructive, and then we just, that parent then becomes the next beast, you know. And then what do we do? We create another beast to control that beast. And this is generally what we do. So mindfulness is a different approach which is uh, we're letting nature, the wisdom in nature, arise. Now, we'd like our wisdom to be stronger, better, but it's only going to be as clear and effective as it is. But that's how it gets stronger. We let it do what it does, and if it fails, we notice that. And if it succeeds, we notice that. So we're kind of letting, I know it sounds like a cliche, but we're letting life live itself, but we're really aware of how it's doing as we let Kim or Mark live itself, do its, do its own thing. So it's not like just letting everything be, because that would be giving up. You know, It's letting everything be with a, a very stable, clear presence. So we're re when we make a mistake and we act in a way that causes harm for ourselves and others, we really feel it. And we're, when we act in a way that really sets things loose, opens things up in a really skillful way, we're really there. We're really feeling the results. And all that information gets fed back in naturally without anybody having to do anything. And then the liberation comes before we're a perfect human being. 
Otherwise, we have this idea that I can't be liberated until everything I do is perfect. That itself is a kind of hell, you know. But if we understand that being on the path itself can be the expression of liberation, like getting out of the way and letting wisdom do its thing and learn from the mistakes, then we can be free being an imperfect human being. We don't have to wait until we're all squeaky and shiny. Some time for maybe one more comment or yeah, Kristen. Just have a general comment um, when you were saying that you, know, you really can't be in this practice if you've got you know if you're lying or cheating on your spouse or taxes or um, haven't cleaned your bathroom. Kind of stuff. Not a thought, and I just realized. I mean, I've, I've known this, but I realized that all the the tools of the, the non-reacting and, and the, the wise thoughts and making wise choices. I just, since I started this practice, don't really have any drama in my life. And it really made me realize how much it's so self-created. Yeah. I mean, just even like a family. It's still, there's still insanity, but mm-hmm. I just learning to not be wise yeah. and not say something that I might have said or and not take something personal or you know, in my workplace I think. And I like this so much less dramatic uh, mm-hmm. and painful. Yeah. That's a great testimonial. I just I just wanted to say that I just realized that I guess I don't have any drama anymore. And I think it's all because I've changed my mind about how I react to things or mm-hmm. what makes me feel good. You know, I maybe used to be a little bit addicted to drama in a way. But anyway, I just thought my mind. Well, I appreciate that. And, and I think what the, you know, the Buddha was uncompromising. So probably what he'd say to somebody who said something like what you said, Kristen, is great, but now develop even more sensitivity. So, so you've cleared out the sort of gross drama, you know. So let's, let's develop a hypersensitivity, a kind of clarity and sensitivity in the mind so we're starting to pick up on all the subtle dramas. Because if, it, if this amount of work was good and has led to a lot of freedom in your life, well, why not just keep continuing it? And, and the thing about developing sensitivity, more presence, is life just gets richer and richer. But without wisdom, sensitivity is unbearable. That's why people drink. That's why people watch a lot of TV. And you know, that's why we do all these things. Because it's unbearable being sensitive. But once, wisdom, once we get a sense of wisdom and the ability of not getting sucked in, but really being present without identified, without getting attached, then sensitivity is a great thing. Because it just draws us right into the middle of everything. And we realize it's okay to be in the middle of everything. Beauty, hell. We can really show up when people are in need of a, some, you know, a good friend because we're not afraid to show up. We practice being relaxed and sensitive and not attached all through our life. So that's what I would encourage is just do what you can. You don't need... The, the wisdom will take care of itself. 
the, the thing that fuels the deepening, the, the development of wisdom is just greater sensitivity. Because now, once the mind knows how to be wise, how not to get drawn in, then all we need to do is feed it by paying more attention to our life. And things just take care of themselves from there. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. We need to leave it here, so we'll just take a few seconds and maybe a breath or two together. And we can appreciate these wise teachings passed down by the men and women who did their best to cultivate awareness, wisdom, and compassion in their lives and passed it on, modeled it. And so may this also be true for us. May we be inspired to develop the practice depending on our particular situations just to do the best we can, not to give up, to be a cause for peace and wisdom and liberation from suffering in all directions. So may this be so. Thanks, everyone, for coming tonight. Really nice to be here together. Have a good week, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.